0: You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Folks online are like, uh, what in the world is going on? So, bought some new batteries, and uh, apparently they die rather quickly all at once. So, apologize for that. I just want to say welcome to each of you this morning. Uh, To those that are online, we want to say that we're glad that you're here. And for both groups of people, if if you need to contact us, if you need to connect with us, uh, there's several ways you can do that. Of course, through Facebook. Uh, You can do it through email, jeff at highpark.church. Uh, you can call us here at the church. There's several ways you can reach out to us, and we would love uh, to have a conversation with you, get to know you a little bit better. No matter where you live, no matter where you're tuning in from, we'd love to get to know you. So take the time, connect with us. We'd love to have that conversation. First Timothy chapter one. Uh, let's start with verse one. We want to read these first 11 verses this morning. First Timothy chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away in the vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. "'Understanding this, that the law is not laid down "'for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, "'for the ungodly and sinners, "'for the unholy and profane, "'for those who strike their fathers and mothers, "'for murderers, the sexually immoral, "'men who practice homosexuality, "'enslavers, liars, perjurers, "'and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, "'in accordance with the gospel of glory, "'the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your grace, the provision that you, that you place in our lives every single week. Every single person has been the recipient of your good grace this past week. Father, it may be a, a drink of water, it may be a meal, it may be a warm house, it may be a job, it may be a paycheck, whatever it is, Father, we've received very much from your hand and we thank you for it. Father, this morning our desire is to Understand your word, but not just be hearers of the word, but be doers also. Father, your word is a powerful, powerful thing. It can bring about life change. It can cut some things out of our life that need to be cut out. Father, it can help us to follow you by faith. It can, it can change not only our life today, but it can change our eternity. So, Father, we believe every word of it. We know, Lord, that it is Your Word to us. So, Father, I pray that You would help me this morning as we walk through it. That, Father, You would challenge us. That we could take some evaluation of our life
1: and where we stand with You. That, Father, we would leave here different than the way we came in. So we ask the Holy Spirit to take
0: the words that I'm about to share this morning. And, Father, I ask that every word I share be exactly what You want shared. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take the Word and that you would sow it in hearts that are ready to receive it. And Father, that those seeds of the Gospel would take root, they would burst forth, and they would produce fruit, much fruit, to your kingdom, to your glory alone. Father, we ask all this in the strong and powerful name of our risen Savior, our King, who is soon coming again. We ask all this in His name. Amen. As I've said to you before, uh, I've had a, a fascination with, some, with world history, certain aspects of world history, and particularly World War II, and particularly the rise of the Third Reich under Hitler and the Nazis and all that happened through all of that. I, I read it with interest because there, in that particular time frame, the evil that was part of concentration camps, and what Hitler was proclaiming as truth, Uh, just the absolute debased nature of the evil of what happened there, I want to understand it, and I want to be able to see the patterns, and I want to understand and and learn from history so that if I can be a voice to break sure that something like that never happens again, I want to be that voice. There's something about that particular time that has always bothered me. And I've done quite a bit of reading about it, trying to understand it. But there were both Roman Catholic churches and Protestant churches all over Germany. And as Hitler rises to power and as he was very open about what he believed and and, and that he was very open about the white race and that the white race was, was the German race was the pure race and that other races were less than. And as his message continued to uh, roll out that we get to the point where Lesser human beings, the way Hitler described it, should not be allowed to live. The issue that I've got and the struggle I've got is how that churches, especially Protestant churches, that were teaching the Bible, and understands that the Bible, there's no place for racism, there's no place for hatred, that the love God must translate into loving neighbor as loving yourself, regardless of who that neighbor is, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of, of any Struggles that they have, we are called to love how that a Protestant church could acquiesce to the Third Reich to not only acquiesce, but to join in with Hitler's Nazi party and
1: support what he was doing. There were churches that joined in almost immediately.
0: There were other churches that tried to kind of straddle the fence if you say walk a knife edge between trying to do what hitler wanted but at the same time knowing there was a huge conflict between what hitler was asking and requiring and teaching versus what the bible taught and as time would go on and they would see what was happening to the jewish race they were struggling between how can we adhere to the to the gospel while at the same time not be killed and put to death and certainly it was driven by fear, and I, and I understand that, and I don't discount that, but yet they did acquiesce. Then there was another group of churches called the Confessing Churches. And these were the churches that stood upon the gospel, who spoke against what Hitler was doing. And there was a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was certainly part of that movement. We'll talk about him a little bit at the end.
1: But there were churches that stood, but there were a lot of churches who simply rolled over. during the Nuremberg trials between 1945 and 1946,
0: and those Nazi war criminals were put on trial, there, were, there was a huge amount of documents that were taken out of the regime and was used as evidence in those trials. And, and one set of documents that I've read, which was really interesting, was that not only did Hitler have a, a deep hatred for the Jewish race, but he also had as a, as a goal to eliminate Christianity the gospel, Christianity, traditional Christianity, he wanted to eliminate. And that he and his leadership sat down and they came up with a plan on how to deal with the churches, the Protestant churches within Germany and beyond. And the document that was written up was a plan on how to basically undermine those churches and get those churches on board with the Third Reich. And here's what the plan was. The first part of the plan, the first step, was to take over the churches from the inside out. So what they would do is they would have Nazi sympathizers who would join a church, would become part of the church body, but their sole purpose in being there was to undermine and to divide the church from the inside. So they were false teachers. They were false members who came into the congregation for the sole purpose of of being a presence for the Nazi party inside that church to report back to the Nazi officials what was being taught and to be actively engaged in trying to undermine the church. Step one. Step two. The next step was to discredit, disfame, throw in jail, and even kill the pastors and leaders of those churches. So they would start out by publicly shaming them, by discrediting them, by by putting the stuff in their communities that said that these, these guys are heretics, they are crazy, they're losers, they don't know what they're talking about. And they would publicly defame those church leaders all to get them to conform. And if they didn't conform, they'd be thrown in jail. And if they were thrown in jail and they still didn't conform, they'd be put to death. And of course, the third part of this plan was once they've got nazi sympathizers inside the membership once they've attacked the pastors and the leaders the next thing was to begin indoctrination from inside the church to begin introducing the third reich's philosophy and try to pair it up with the gospel to try to somehow get the the gospel in the bible to work coincide with nazism and the idea that the jewish race must be eliminated that children with disabilities didn't deserve to live now you think you would think for a moment that, that any follower of Jesus that spent any time in God's Word would say, there's no way that we can take the gospel, the teachings of, of Jesus, and, and pair them up with the Hitler Nazi regime because the two are completely incompatible. The two are mutually exclusive. There's no way the two can work together. But yet, over time, church after church after church align
1: themselves with a murderous, hate-filled Nazi party. And you have to wonder, how did that happen? Well, we know how it happened. People inside, teaching and dividing, pastors being attacked, and eventually over time, people acquiesce.
0: The reason I talk about this, the reason I bring this up is because we're going to be looking at Ephesus over the next several weeks. And Timothy has been placed as pastor over the only gospel church in Ephesus. And Ephesus is not an easy place to pastor a church. As a matter of fact, of all the cultures that we see in the New Testament, I think Ephesus was as much like our culture as any other culture. Paul saw this particular church plant in Asia Minor as one of the most important. Because in Ephesus, you had... A port, ships could come and go into this city. You had a major Roman road that ran through. You had hundreds of thousands of people who were residents of Ephesus, but you had other hundreds and thousands of people who traveled through Ephesus. So Paul saw it as a critical location for a church. and Paul would spend two or three years of his life there. But he would place Timothy there as pastor of the only gospel church in the entire city. Paul first enters Ephesus on his second missionary journey in Acts 18. He's only there for a brief amount of time, but even while he's there, he sees some impact of the gospel. He leaves, and then on his third missionary journey, he returns. And in in AD 54, AD 56, he's there for almost two to three years, teaching and preaching the gospel, and he sees amazing fruit. Uh, There are people who respond, lots of people who respond to the gospel. He, uh, is being so effective there that a group of people who were selling idols get upset and try to, try to run Paul out of town because he's being so effective with the gospel that it's hurting their bottom line. Ephesus was an incredibly evil city. If you could walk through the streets of Ephesus, you would blush. Right in the center of the city was a temple to a false goddess called Diana. And people were flocking from all over the world to go to Ephesus, not only to see the culture, not only to see the city, but they were coming to participate in worship of this goddess called Diana. And connected with that worship of Diana was all kinds of sexual deviancy. And it was so profound in the city that that you could walk into the streets, you could walk up and down the streets and see all kinds of lewd behavior, right out, no shame, not behind closed doors, no matter where you looked, you saw incredible sexual sin in Ephesus. So this is not an easy place to pastor a church. We don't know exactly when Paul sent Timothy there. We know that after Paul was arrested and was taken to Rome, He was released for a little while, and apparently he went on another tour of the churches. The only thing is he didn't go back to Ephesus. And he goes around to the churches, and somewhere in that that journey going back and checking on the churches, he tells Timothy, Timothy, my son in the faith, I need you to go to Ephesus because Ephesus is a very strategic church for us, and it must remain healthy, and I know that that church is going to come under attack. As a matter of fact, Paul had already told the leadership before Timothy went there, that they were gonna be under attack. In Acts 20, Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. He doesn't go into Ephesus, instead he asks for the elders, the leaders out of the church to meet him at Miletus. And there he sits down and he looks those leaders right in the eye and he says to them, guys, I'm never coming back. I will never be back in Ephesus. And the, the Bible says, Luke says there that they cried and they shed a lot of tears together because they loved Paul and Paul loved this church. He looks at him and he says, but what I'm afraid of is after I leave, that there are going to be ravenous wolves that come into the fellowship and they will not spare the flock. So he says to his elders, elders, you have got to pastor, you have got to shepherd, you have got to protect, you have got to stand upon the gospel because Paul saw that in this culture, if this church did not stand upon the truth of God's word, if they did not protect the gospel, that this church was going to acquiesce to the culture. And how would it happen? false teachers that would creep into the congregation. You see, when Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, we have technology. We have all kinds of ways now to engage in unrighteousness. But make no mistake about it, the unrighteousness that we engage in has not changed since the fall of humanity. And Satan's Attacks, his schemes also have not changed because they're still effective. And false teachers creep into the local body and they begin to undermine the doctrines of the God's word and of the gospel. And as they begin to undermine, the church becomes divided. And as a church becomes divided, they take their focus off of their mission. And the next thing you know,
1: it spirals into arguments, heresy, Paul placed Timothy there because Timothy had been true in the faith. And that this
0: church is the only pushback on the culture in Ephesus. Everyone in Ephesus is living like people in Ephesus. They're engaging in whatever they want to engage in. And this church is the only gospel-centered church in the entire city. And if this church fails, There will be no pushback on the sin and the evil and the debauchery and all that's going on in this city. There'll be no
1: voice of truth. If the church joins the world, if the church is infiltrated with false teaching,
0: if the church decides and its leadership decides that they are just going to go along to get along, then who is going to be the voice of truth in a community
1: that's running headlong Toward sin and disobedience. Look at verse 3. Paul says to Timothy,
0: As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. What's interesting about this opening of this letter, Paul devotes two verses, two verses to saying, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. This letter is written to my son in the faith, Timothy. And he says, grace and mercy and peace to you. Two verses. And then Paul immediately gets to the point. I think the reason Paul does this is because he knows the brevity of the moment. And I think he also knows that a pastor who's having to lead a church in a place like Ephesus may be wavering a little bit. Notice the first thing in this letter that Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, remain at Ephesus. Why do you think he says that? Why do you think the first charge that Paul gives Timothy is, "Hey, Timothy, uh, remain at Ephesus? I'll tell you why. Because Timothy is in a very hard city doing a very hard work, speaking a very hard truth, and I would imagine... Timothy being a man, there's times where his knees are knocking together. There are times that Timothy is second-guessing his calling, second-guessing his ministry, second-guessing his impact, second-guessing that he's even supposed to be in Ephesus because that's exactly what Satan does, and he does it well. He does it to your pastor on a regular basis. I can't tell you over the last 15 years how many times I've laid awake at night going, God, is is this what I'm supposed to do? God, should I just go back and, and do electrical work? I mean, I can run conduit and pull wire all day. I can punch a clock in the morning. I can punch a clock in the afternoon. And I can go home and I can unplug from all that. And I can just go home and I can be a dad and I can be a husband. I don't have to be concerned about the culture or anything else. Wouldn't that be easier? And God says, hey, remain where I have put you. Remain in the calling that I have given you. Do not back down. Do not get weak Need. Do not stand on sand. You stand upon the rock that
1: I put you on. You'd be amazed at how many times I've wanted to quit. Yeah, it's true. But I can't, and neither can you. You you have a calling on your life. It may not be the full-time vocational ministry, but you've got a calling
0: to engage in the Great Commission work that God has set in front of. Nobody's exempt from that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been called to Great Commission work. That is your calling. That's my calling. It's all of our calling.
1: Great commission work, making disciples, bringing Jesus up. That's hard work in the culture in which we live. You may get called some things. You may get treated differently at work.
0: When when you speak up against what our culture is saying, when you you say, wait a minute, mm, uh, that's just not true. There can be a visceral response to that. Maybe you've already experienced that. And maybe you've been up at night going, I know the pastor said that we're part of Great Commission work
1: here, but I don't know that I want to continue in this work. If your goal is to be liked by people, you're going to have a hard time with Great Commission work.
0: I think the reason Paul immediately, quickly, early in this letter says, Timothy, remain, is because Timothy's having some second guessing about this whole thing. But if if Timothy quits, where's going to be the voice of truth in a city that needs to hear the truth? Listen, the the gospel work that we've been called to, we've not been called to easy work. We've not been called to a comfortable life. The American church has bought into the idea that God is more concerned about our comfort than he is our holiness. No, he's not. He's not the least bit concerned about your comfort. What he's concerned about is all those who are on their wide path leading to destruction and that we're to be standing in the gap for those people, the hard work of the gospel. So he says, remain. Why does he need to remain? Well, he needs to confront. Look at this. He says, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any other different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Timothy, the reason you must remain, the reason you, Christian, must remain steadfast is because... You have got to be the voice of reason for this culture. You've got to be the one that is so in love with Jesus that you're willing to bring up the truth. And notice here he says, Timothy, you must be willing to confront. Now, if you have the idea that Christians are just supposed to be, well, altogether so loving that we can't confront. If your idea of Christianity is some kind of, you know, mushy, gushy, feel good kind of thing and you know, we can't ever talk about hard stuff, then your Christianity is not New Testament Christianity. He says to Timothy, Timothy, as a pastor, as a shepherd, you've got to confront this. You've got to confront it. You've got to deal with it because these people have devoted themselves. Now get this, just as much as Timothy has devoted himself to the gospel, these false teachers have devoted
1: themselves to division. Our culture is very, very committed to what they're teaching.
0: I think you've probably noticed that on social media, have you not? You've probably got some friends in your friend list that are very committed to what the culture's selling. And they're preaching a message just like we're trying to preach a message, right? They're committed, they're devoted to it. Timothy, you must be devoted. You must remain because there's a stewardship from God that is by faith. Now these people who were infiltrating the church, we don't know exactly who these false teachers were. Certainly they were probably had a Jewish background. Uh, some believe they were, they were from Gnosticism, which is still several years away to being really taken hold of culture. Gnosticism is this, you know, high belief of there's some spiritual truth that is unknown, and God can't really be known. He's out there running the, the universe, and it's, it's really this odd set of philosophy and religion. I'm not so sure it was that, and I don't think it really matters. The point is, Paul says, here's what they're doing. They are swerving from the truth. They've wandered away in the vain discussion. They're desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. They're in the church and they are they are there to divide. They are there to to undermine Timothy's leadership. They're there to speak against the gospel, to undermine it. They are there speaking an opposite message of what Timothy is speaking, and therefore the church is going to spin off into heresy discussions debates, speculations, and while they're speculating and while they're arguing and while they're in fighting with one another, guess what they're not doing? They're not focused on the Great Commission. They're not reaching their culture. And I would offer to you, that's exactly
1: the reason the false teachers are there. Empowered by Satan. The forces of darkness. Timothy, you must confront them. You must deal with this. Did you notice
0: there in verse 7? These teachers who claim to know a lot, they're not even confident in their own assertions. They don't, they're, they're, they're not even confident in what they're teaching. Have you noticed in our culture right now, there is so much stuff coming at us that I can't even keep up with it anymore? And the people who are proclaiming this stuff, they're not even sure what
1: they're proclaiming. I mean, the reality, the idea that, that there are more genders
0: than just male and female, that there can be, 10, 20, 30, 50, and the list is growing and growing and growing. And at the very moment, you
1: raise the idea that, wait a minute, um, I take the position there's only two, male and female,
0: that because they don't have any kind of debatable argument, they, they don't even know what they believe. They're just, they're just drinking the water of the culture. They have no... Reason about what they're trying to say. They have no confidence in what they're saying. Instead of engaging in a debate with you, what do they do? They get very angry with you, do they not? They just
1: pull the pin on their grenade and throw it at you. It's because they have no argument. It's because they're not even confident in their own assertions. Guess what? Timothy was dealing with teachers who were teaching things who weren't even confident in what they were teaching. It's because their culture was dictating what they taught. Notice
0: verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good. Now, these t- teachers were doing something with God's law. We're gonna, As we get into the book, we'll learn more, a little bit more about that. But uh, they were probably some Jewish people who were taking maybe the law and adding it to the gospel, that you must do some good works. But, but they were misusing God's law. So then Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you've got to understand the law is good. The law is not a bad thing if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just or for the lawless and disobedient. So what function does God's law have in the world? Well, I want to give you three things really quickly that you can write down. You can remember as you're reading God's word, this will help you when Paul's talking about the law or when Jesus is talking about the law. The law takes on three different Well, applications are three different modes, I guess I could say, and I'm going to give you some illustration to help you with. First of all, the law can act as a locked door, a locked door. So a locked door keeps you from entering into another room or entering into a building, right? Well, the law acts as a restraint. So God's law in the world and governments that are built around law and order, what it does is it restrains evil, it restrains wickedness. So in other words, we have laws that say you can't murder. You can't just kill someone in cold blood. If you do, you're going to go before a jury of your peers. You're going to stand before a judge, and you may receive capital punishment. You may be put in prison for the rest of your life. Uh, we have, we have a, a speed limit sign on, on Roberts Avenue out here. And I know that every one of you obeyed it on the way in. It says 45, just like I obeyed it when I came in this morning. It says 45. The reason there's a speed limit there is to make sure that all of us don't get to get on Roberts Avenue and just decide that today I want to drive 80 because I'm in a hurry. We have stoplights that turn red and yellow and green, although some of you think yellow and green are the same.
1: So let's just stick with red and green. If we didn't abide by the law that a red light means stop, then
0: if you're in a hurry, you can just decide to just breeze right on through the intersection, right? Right? The law is there to restrain evil, to keep you in check. Because remember, your heart is wicked, desperately wicked. Who can know the depths of it? Jeremiah says in chapter 17 of his book. So we need law to restrain. So it's like a locked door and it restrains evil. The second thing that law does, it's like a mirror. So it's like a locked door and it's like a mirror. And this mirror reveals something about us. So when you look in a mirror, you see how you look, you see who you are, right? So the law as a mirror reveals some things about us. You know what it reveals? That we're not good people after all. We're not good people. We're broken people. We're people who have a tendency to rebel. So when we look at God's law and we see that God's law says, this is my expectation, we automatically know that we all miss that expectation by a mile. So it's a mirror that shows us, shows us what, what is wrong and, what is wrong with us. And then third, it's a guide. So not only does the mirror point out that we have some sin in our life, but it's also a guide that reveals what is right. So if the mirror reveals what is wrong, the law is a guide reveals to us what is right, that there is righteousness, that there is a righteous lawgiver, God, the creator of this universe, who owns the universe, and by the way, he gets to dictate how it runs. The creator of this universe gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. You don't get to choose that and the law that he has given says not only there are things that are wrong but there are things that are right abiding by the law when you drive down roberts keeps people around you safe that is righteous that is a right thing to do so the law has these three functions but in this particular context here is the function that paul is talking about he's talking about the locked door he's talking about the locked door he's saying that the law is good If you use it lawfully, but understand this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the
1: disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, and for the unholy and profane. When I put my faith in Jesus, and when I received His grace and His salvation by faith,
0: what Jesus did on that cross became a reality for me. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled all that the law required and all the sin that I'd done, he paid the wrath. He, God's wrath poured out on him was the wrath that I deserved. But, but Jesus had lived a perfect life. He kept every aspect of the law on my behalf. I could never keep the law. I could never keep all the laws. I couldn't, I couldn't even keep the 10. Just the 10 commandments, I couldn't keep them. Much less the 613 laws. Jesus knew that. So he comes, he keeps them all perfectly. He takes my wrath upon himself for all the sin that I committed. And then when I put my faith in, in Jesus, all that becomes reality in my life that I am no longer under the law because I have been justified. I've been made right. I've been brought out from under the wrath of God. Therefore, Paul says, that the law has not been laid down for the just. Now I live, I try to live by the law of God, not to earn something from God, but as an act of Worship to honor him. But he says here that this law, this locked door to restrain evil, now that was given for the lawless and the disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Paul gives us a little insight into what's going on in Ephesus here. He says that there are those who are striking their parents, possibly even killing them. That was connected, no doubt, to the worship of Diana. In the background of what Paul's going to show here to Timothy is the Ten Commandments. So he says they're striking their parents, breaking the fifth commandment, possibly the sixth if, if they're killing their own parents. To honor your parents and to not commit murder. Then he says this. He says, strike their fathers and mothers for murderers. There was murder happening in the streets of Ephesus. When you have a city that is completely given to all kinds of immorality, We shouldn't be surprised when we find rampant killing of innocent people in the streets. When there is no value of life whatsoever. And that's what's happening. And Paul says they're breaking that sixth command. Then he says the sexually immoral adulterers breaking the seventh command. Then he says, men who practice, and notice that, who practice homosexuality, that that is a sin. And Paul says right here, he says right here, that that is also breaking that seventh commandment. He talks about liars, or I'm sorry, enslavers, breaking the eighth command. Liars and perjurers, breaking the ninth command. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, remain at your post and remain, continue to charge and deal with those, confront those who are teaching false doctrine? Because Timothy, your church, the presence of the gospel there is the only voice of opposition to a community that is completely given to sin. He says they are running completely rampant towards disobedience. And Timothy, you have got to remain. Timothy, this church has got to remain because you are the only voice of truth in that entire city of
1: hundreds of thousands of people of people. Timothy, I know your knees are knocking. I know you're questioning it. But you've got to understand the brevity of the moment. You've got to remain. He says here, notice, he says here
0: that whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So he names all these things that are going on in Ephesus. But he closes it out by saying whatever is contrary to God's word, is what they're embracing. Does that sound familiar? Does it seem as though our culture is actively trying to find things that are in complete opposition to the created order that God has put the cosmos together, that they are actively seeking out things that are completely in contradiction to even who they are as human beings, denying even who they are as a
1: human being simply to do what the culture is asking them to do?
0: I had a conversation with someone in this church recently and this person's in a position who he's dealing with this gender, gender identity issue and he, he said this and I, it's been ringing in my head. He said that the situation he's in and the, the gender identity issue that his uh, profession is requiring him to acquiesce to, to keep his job. He said to his boss, he said, you know, you're asking me to lie to myself. You're asking me to lie to myself. You're asking me that, that I must accept all these different identities, that there's, there's pronouns that I can no longer use. I can't, he says, I can't even communicate in the English language anymore because it can get me in trouble. And he said, what you're asking me to do is to violate my own conscience and to lie to myself because I believe there's only two possibilities here, male or female, and you're asking me to lay aside Thousands of years of societal history? You're asking me to lie to myself and lie to the people who are under me when I
1: know something else to be true? And his boss said, yes. That's exactly what I'm asking you to do. Go back to verse five. Paul's saying
0: to Timothy, Timothy, remain at your post. Confront the false teachers. What you're doing there matters. Your voice of truth and emphasis matters. And while I know it's hard and while I know it's difficult, you've got to stick by right doctrine. What we're going to look, what we're going to see as we go through 1 and 2 Timothy, you're going to see this continual coming back to teaching right doctrine, and that that leads to societal change. That you stick by what is true, even if it hurts, but that's the only way in society. Can find their way and to turn from disobedience is only through the gospel. Look at verse five. I intentionally skipped over verse five. Right in the middle of all this that he's he's saying to Timothy to exhort him and to encourage him, right in the middle of verse five, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That had to be a calming moment for Timothy. Because that's exactly the gospel. He says to Timothy, Timothy, our aim, our goal, just to remind Timothy, hey, here's what you're about, here's what you're to do. Yeah, you gotta confront teachers. Yeah, you gotta teach God's word correctly, you gotta rightly divide it. But remember, Timothy, all that we do, our charge is based on love. I want to give you just four things right out of that verse five that helps us kind of put all this together. He says that love is our ministry. Now, I've had this said to me before, and it's being said quite a bit in culture right now, and it's going to increase. I just want you to know that. That any person who takes a different position on any social issue is motivated by hate. So it goes something like this. For me to say what I've already said up here this morning, to say that homosexuality is a sin, to say that there's only two genders, there are people out there who will watch this and go see he's a hater. He hates people. The Church of Jesus Christ hates people. But I want to be as clear as I can possibly be this morning. I want to be crystal clear here that there is not a bit of hate in my heart for anyone who is engaging in any kind of lifestyle out there somewhere. It doesn't matter what you're engaging in. This church, this leadership, this pastor, We're motivated by love. You can believe whatever you want to believe. You can believe what the culture's telling you about who we are, but I can tell you right now, it's a lie. There's no way that I can follow Jesus. There's no way that I can be his disciple and hate my neighbor, and that includes you. I can't faithfully follow Jesus. I can't faithfully fulfill my calling if I've got a heart filled with hate. There is not a single person, person, it doesn't matter the color of your skin or the choices you've made, there's not a single person on God's green
1: earth right now that I hate. I have freedom in that. We may disagree. And we may passionately disagree. But there's no one I hate. This church doesn't
0: hate you. You know why this church doesn't hate you? Because there's people here and people out there that have came out of brokenness, came out of where you are, found that Jesus loves them, finds that the the church loves them, finds that all that they had heard about the church was absolutely a lie. They found peace and true life through the gospel, and they've came out of the mess you're still in. That's why they love you. Because they want you to find the same peace that they found. The purpose of Paul's charge is, yes,
1: to confront Can we confront and still love? Yes. As a matter of fact, I would offer to you that confronting is loving if it's done the right way.
0: Listen, if your life is going to bring untold heartache into your, if the things you're doing, the choices you're making, is going to bring all kinds of heartache into your life, destruction, pain, isolation, depression, and all of it goes on and on. If, if, if the choices you're making is going to bring that into your life, and I see that, and, and I say you love, uh, if I say I love you, and I don't bring those things up to say, look, you're bringing harm into your life, then it doesn't matter what I say. I don't love you if I'm not willing to confront you. I'm trying to help you. if someone gets a gash across their arm and they're bleeding out, what's my first response? Put pressure on it. Yeah, it's going to hurt. Yeah, we're going to have to acknowledge there's a big old gash there, but I'm putting pressure on there to stop the bleeding so you don't bleed out and die. I'm willing to tell you the truth because I love you. I'm not willing to acquiesce to the culture because I love you. Somebody's got to be a voice of reason in this world we live in. Paul says to Timothy, you've got to be motivated by love, Timothy. You've got to be. Genuine love is willing to speak up when a person is believing a lie. But Paul also says, Timothy, you've got to be watching your motivation as well. Look at this. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. A pure heart. Paul talks about the motivation. You see, you can do things with the wrong heart attitude you you can have some outward religious ritual but you can be cold and different on the inside the motivation for love is purity purity of heart no malice no hatred but here's the thing here's the thing we've got to wrestle with church while you may not be hating the person you may not have any malice towards the person who has gender identity confusion or is living a homosexual lifestyle you may have no hatred or no malice but let me tell you what we do have and this is what the church is suffering with terribly they you've got arrogance arrogance when i get on facebook and i see what disciples of jesus are posting on facebook lobbing grenades at somebody they disagree with well, all i see is arrogance and pride and can i just offer to you that any kind of arrogance and pride in what you're doing is not reaching the person, you're pushing the person further into the sin. Folks, please, please do your pastor a favor and please pay attention to the stuff you're putting on social media. You are bringing discord to the church. You're hurting our testimony because what you're doing when you're lobbying that kind of arrogance out on social media is you're affirming what our society already thinks about us. You need to think three, four, five, and eight times before you hit post, please. Because I'm going to tell you something. I shudder at some of the things I see. You're posting heresy. Did you know that? Okay, i got to stop here just a minute. If you're posting something on Facebook that the Bible says this, you better be doggone sure the Bible says what you're posting. If not, you're spreading heresy. And all I can offer to you is this piece of advice. Stop it.
1: Okay? Stop it. You're driving me nuts. And you're not helping the cause of Christ. Listen to this. Confrontation. Confrontation with
0: arrogance is just as sinful as the sin you're pointing out in that
1: other person's life. Pride. Arrogance is the root of all sins, right? It's about you. So if you're
0: out there beating people down, you're not beating them down because you want them to come to Jesus. You're beating them down because you want to see yourself up here and you want to keep them down there. Makes you feel good about yourself,
1: don't it? Makes you feel good that, oh, I've got this and this person, well, they're less than me. Okay, I'll move on now. Good conscience. Love, pure heart, good conscience.
0: A good conscience a conscience that has been formed by the Word of God. Your conscience, how you view the world, your worldview, how you see right and wrong, that's all
1: being conformed and formed by God's Word, right? We truly believe that God's
0: Word is true. We sincerely believe it. So when we talk about a good conscience, we're talking about strong conviction. We're talking about strong confidence that this is, in fact, God's Word. And as we read it and as we consume it, as we hear it taught, it, it, it conforms our consciousness to the consciousness of Christ that we are to live in Christ-likeness, walk in Christ-likeness. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy,
1: Timothy, have a good conscience. Understand that what you see in
0: your community, that there are some things that are wrong. I can imagine in mind's eye that Timothy, I I, I would imagine that Timothy's church was probably a house church. Might have been multiple house churches. So let's imagine that Timothy's walking out of his house church at 12.15 on a Sunday because everybody's got to get to lunch, right? 12.15, he walks out. As soon as he walks out the doors of his house church, right across the street, he sees a party. And those people have no clothes on, and they're engaging in all kinds of incredible
1: evil right there. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you have a good conscience.
0: You've got to have a conscience that is bent to God's Word, and you've got to do great commission work with a good conscience knowing that there are things that are wrong and things that are right. There are things that are bringing destruction into people's life, and you've got to be be guarded, but you've got to be immersed in God's Word because it forms your consciousness to what is right and what is wrong. And finally, he says
1: to Timothy, Timothy, a sincere faith. We truly do believe, we truly do believe
0: that God's Word is God's Word. We truly do believe that what God says in these 66 books is the truth. We are sincere. We're not, we're not trying to put on airs. We're not trying to trying to build something up. We're simply trying to follow Jesus, and we believe that following Jesus means that we adhere to His word, and we believe that His word, as we have it, is perfect and pure, and this is the only truth that we need. Sincere. So I want to be, be very sincere this morning. I want to be sincere. I want to be loving. I want to have a pure heart with the right motivation. I want to have a good, clear conscience that's formed by God's Word. But, but I want to be very sincere when what I'm about to say this morning. I want to be as clear as I possibly can. As the pastor of this church, we believe wholeheartedly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe wholeheartedly that Jesus Christ died in our place, that He resurrected three days later, We wholeheartedly believe in the created order that God has put forth, that marriage is only between one man and one woman for life. We believe that there are only two genders, one man, one female. We do not believe there are 20, 30. We don't say that out of hatred. We don't say that out of disgust. We say that based on the truth of God's word. And I want to be very clear we will not acquiesce to the culture we will not back down we will not give up our post we will not stop talking about it we will not give up because we know the truth of god's word we know that we're going to stand before him one day and we will not acquiesce so therefore from here on forward you can go back to this video today at time i don't know about 11:50, and you can look at this video and know that our commitment has not wavered. It does not matter if they come and take our building. It does not matter if you come and take our nonprofit status. It does not mind me. Does it doesn't bother me. It will not change a thing if you raid my bank account. If you somehow take my 401k. If you come after my family. If you come after my kids. If you come after my Bible and all I've got is one page. I will not acquiesce to this culture. Period. Period. So let it be known. Let it be known that myself and the leadership of this church we are going to keep on preaching the gospel. We are going to stand upon God's word, whatever comes down the pipe. And if false teachers creep into this congregation, we will deal with it.
1: We made no mistake about it. We love Jesus. And We love you. And we love you enough to tell you the truth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was part of those confessing churches. And those confessing churches stood against Hitler and the regime. And they paid an awful
0: price. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested in 1943. And he was put to death in 1945. Right, literally right, just almost at the same time that the the regime was about to fall, they put him to death. It was that close. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lost several of his family members because they stood Upon the truth, they they were put to death as well. We'll talk more about him as we go through this book. But I want to give you one quote as we close this morning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in all the pain and all the suffering and, and all that he had to deal with, said this quote: "Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak
1: is to speak. Not to act." is to act. Remain at your post. If you're a school teacher, remain at your post. If you're a healthcare worker, remain at your post. If, if you're getting confronted with the culture, stay at your post. Remain. You may be the only voice of truth in that entire system. Remain right where you are. Love right where you are, with right motive, clear conscience, and sincere faith. Father in heaven, I wonder, Father, sometimes if, like me, at times
0: where I've wavered, where I've felt the pressure of the society and the culture bearing down, and, Father, I've just gotten weary with the work weary with being steadfast and having to deal with all these different things coming at us. I wonder Father if I'm not alone in my wavering. Father in confessing that I want this congregation to know that um, I struggle with it as well. And Father by them knowing that I, I pray Father that they would understand that we're all in this together. Our callings are different. Our giftings are different, but our calling is the same, that we are to take ownership of the Great Commission. And regardless, regardless of our community and our society and where they go, we stand upon the only truth that matters. But Father, I wonder if some aren't beginning to waver a little bit. They're wavering by becoming angry and prideful and arrogant. And Father, they're engaging the culture the same way the culture is engaging us. And that is just with outright anger. Father, oh Father, we ask that you would get a hold of those hearts, those disciples, who their only mode right now is anger. And Lord, that anger is going to take them to hatred, and hatred is going to take them to bitterness. Correct them. Father, it may be for the one who's decided to just retreat that they've tried, they're trying to figure out how they can walk with Jesus and walk with the world, somehow straddle the fence and walk that knife edge. And Father, I pray that you would get a hold of their heart, that there is no edge to walk. And Father, maybe for others who are just overwhelmed with fear, they're just afraid. And Father, I understand that. Father, whatever the need, your power is greater, your grace is greater, your love is greater. Father, we have a great mission field ahead of us. But Father, I believe and I firmly believe that in the years ahead, we must take up our cross. That Father, it's going to cost, it's going to cost something to follow you. Salvation is free, grace is free, but taking up a cross is costly. And Father, I believe that if we're not standing today, We're not going to stand tomorrow. So, Father, for every person in the room, may we stand. May we remain. Father, have your will in your way. You know what the hearts need. And, Holy Spirit, you know what is needed in this moment. Have your freedom. And, Father, that we would yield. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.